1: I think there's so much that you can ask for. This is also a great opportunity to ask for flexibility, if that's a priority, to ask for additional benefits, really look at the entire package. And each situation is different. Each employer has different constraints and abilities, but there is so much room to get so much of what you want, especially if you know what that is and you are able to open a dialogue
2: where you're really working with them to get you there. the her money podcast is supported by edelman financial engines edelman knows that wealth isn't just about money it's about everything money enables you to do so how do you build wealth join me and award-winning journalist soledad o'brien for a new show everyday wealth presented by edelman financial engines visit everydaywealth.com slash her money to learn more Hey, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining us today on Her Money. I am really, really excited for today's show. We're going to take a deep dive into one of my favorite topics, I think based on our feedback, one of your favorite topics, which is women earning more. Because we know that earning more is our best path to saving what we need for our futures, to building true wealth. And I just want to go ahead and put it right out there. According to so many of the numbers we're seeing today, this is the best time for women to get hired, change jobs, and earn more money than I have really ever seen, truly. In November, the most recent month for which we have data, the number of people who quit their jobs rose to a record high of four and a half million million and if we assume that December was the same as it was on track to be this would mean 47 million people voluntarily left their jobs in 2021 about 33% of the total workforce and these numbers may sound insane at first glance but people women in particular have really good reasons for leaving now is Arguably, the best time for a woman to negotiate for more money and for the work-life balance that she wants since 2008. Research by the conference board shows companies have set aside more money for raises today than any time in the past 15 years. And another study, this one from Sky Nova, showed people who are moving jobs are actually increasing their salaries by an average of 23%. Later in the show, you're going to hear about a Her Money listener who basically tripled that, but on the surface, it is just huge. We've also heard that job seekers are now tapping into higher salaries, more flexible work hours, more flexible locations, and so much more. But with all of this wondering, we started to think, there are probably a lot of you who are thinking, well, I'm ready to do this. I am ready to jump or maybe I want to stay where I am, but I certainly wouldn't mind more money To help us answer all of these questions and navigate our next move, we invited back Catherine Minshew. She is the CEO and co-founder of The Muse, which I know you all know. It's a fabulous job search and career site. She's also the co-author of The New Rules of Work, the modern playbook to navigating your career. And according to a recent Muse poll, 67% of adults say they're looking to change jobs this year. Catherine, wow, have you ever been busier? I literally
1: have never been busier. As you said, it surprised experts and employers alike how many people are making a change. I think I was probably one of the least surprised because I've been... Telling anyone who would listen since the onset of COVID that this was not a change in the balance of power between individuals and employers, but actually that once we got a little bit further through the pandemic and some of the most serious economic constraints were lifted, that we would see a lot of people voting with their feet, thinking about doing something new, frankly, reconsidering their values and reconsidering if the career and the job and the life that they've built is the way that they want it to be. And so I think it's a great time to change jobs. It's a really, really interesting time too, for those of us that work in this space.
2: What do you mean it was not a change in the balance of power between employees and employers? It, it sure feels like it was.
1: Well, I think that it really depends on you know what part of the industry that you're looking at. You know, If you go back gosh, 20, 30 plus years, we were clearly in an environment where employers held all the cards. They would, you know, put up their open job listings. Candidates would have to jump through all sorts of hoops to potentially get that offer. And then once you got a job, you were sort of, in many cases, expected to just, you know, show up and do it and take what you got. And I think we've seen that balance of power shifting dramatically over the last Five to 10 years, but what's happened in the last six months has been just massive. And so I do think that the change, the fact that workers and individuals have more power than ever before to ask for things, to set their terms. That is big. But from my perspective, it's something that's been slowly gaining steam in certain industries, in certain companies, sort of here and there. And now with the just really high volume of people quitting, with the realization among a lot of employers that they have to massively up their game, be more flexible, treat their employees better to keep them, and to frankly attract new people. Now we're seeing that it's not just you know, a trend here and there, but really many, many, many industries and many companies are starting to see the talent, the workers, the individuals, as the ones that they need to support and cater to. It's not universal. There's still a lot of places where employers do hold the cards, but I think that, I love you're doing this episode because I think it is a great time to remind uh, your listeners that they do have, they they do have probably more power than they think they do right now.
2: Is that power across generations. When I look at the quote-unquote great resignation, and I don't know how you feel about that term, it seems to be a little more polarizing than I thought it would be. But when I look at the statistics, we see one segment of the workforce, people who work in retail and hospitality that are actually just, they're not quitting, they're walking across the street and they're they're walking across the street for a few extra dollars an hour as they should. Then we're seeing this Swath of people that are fairly close to retirement that have just had enough. And I'm sort of wondering if you're looking at yourself, and we have a very wide range of listeners when it comes to ages. We know we've got a lot of millennials, we've got a lot of Gen Z, but we also have a lot of Gen X and baby boomers. Does it extend across generations, this power? It does. It really does.
1: Although I will say that. What I'm seeing in terms of the most prevalent trends is somewhat different by type of worker or generation. I think you called out two of the segments that are getting a lot of attention in this great resignation. But I would also call people's attention to entry and mid-level workers who are saying, you know what? Why should I stay in a job where my boss doesn't treat me very well or where the company isn't as competitive as other places? I want to make a change, but rather than just blindly jumping into the next job, I'm going to assess the company. I'm going to ask them how inclusive and diverse their workforce is. I'm going to inquire how they handled the first wave of COVID and whether they took care of any employees that they had to let go. Employees are feeling empowered to ask questions that a couple of years ago, many people would never have been able to ask in an interview and and get honest answers to. And so this is not something that is restricted to just one generation. You said that the term great resignation is a bit controversial. I often, for particularly workers that are not fully opting out of the workforce together, I really like calling it the great reshuffling because so many people, it's not that they're throwing their hands in the air. I'm out. I resign. Like, see you later. Although that's a a fantasy that I'm sure many of your listeners have. But for a lot of people, it's more of them saying, this is what I want and what I value. This is what I have right now. Here are the areas where those things are not aligned. I'm going to leave where I am and take steps to move closer to that ideal or those goals. And I actually think that's a beautiful thing. And I I would really encourage people to use this time to assess whether the job and career they have is meeting their individual and personal goals and values as much as perhaps it could be.
2: You know, one of the interesting things from that study from Skynova that I talked about before was that it showed that although... Some job changers, many job changers, are boosting their earnings. They're not really leaving because of salary. The majority of folks say that they're changing due to limited career growth. So what do we take from that?
1: So first of all, we are seeing the exact same thing on the Muse. When we asked our population, are you thinking about leaving What factors are driving that change? First of all, 67% of users on the Muse said that they are likely or very likely to change jobs in the next 12 months. And that's actually up from 65% in July, when many people were predicting that the Great Resignation was peaking. So we are definitely not out of this thing yet. And in fact, I believe we're going to see two more waves of resignations in 2022, which we can talk about later. But for those who are looking to make a change, the most important criteria that they're seeking in their next job are, like you said, they're they're not compensation or benefits related. In fact, compensation came in number four on the list of people's priorities. Number one was flexibility and work-life balance, which I think is very important to a lot of folks and especially, I'm sure, listeners on this show. Number two was learning and growth opportunities. As you said, the ability to acquire additional skills, to have their companies invest in them. And then, third was team culture, values, and people. So, who are you working with? Is it an environment that's enjoyable to come to work every day? And obviously, how do you assess that from the outside of an organization? So, I think that the things that job seekers care about are definitely changing. And to learning and growth, you know, there was so much economic. Upheaval at the beginning of the pandemic. There were layoffs. There was just, you know, this very challenging, scary state that so many of us lived through. And so I think it's understandable that a lot of people are saying, well, I need to focus on me and my skills, my professional development, my learning and growth, and companies are being very responsive. We're seeing a lot of companies invest more in what's called L&D, learning and development. And in some cases, I'm also seeing a lot of job seekers who are able to negotiate L&D stipends or budgets, professional development commitments into their offer, which can be a really interesting way to increase your compensation package, even if your boss can't budge on base salary or bonus, for example.
2: So when it comes to the flexibility that people want, the work-life balance that people want, that women want, what is possible these days? I mean, how far as companies look to potentially calling workers back to the office or to going to some sort of a hybrid model, what can we ask for? What's reasonable? I think that there is a lot more ability to ask right now
1: than workers have ever had before. And, you know, first of all, let me start by saying that we work with a lot of employers and their talent shortage is existential in many cases. I have senior executives on the phone with me saying, Catherine, I had to close three of my locations because I can't staff them. Or we are at risk of missing are quarterly targets because I don't have the people to do the work that needs to get done. And so if you are thinking about joining a company or you're at a company and you're debating whether to stay, you have more power than ever before to ask. And so what are people asking for? I'm seeing people negotiate for four-day work weeks, sometimes at full pay, sometimes at slightly reduced pay, but certainly more than the kind of 20% that you might have seen an employer suggest in the past, or obviously in the past for many people, it would have been a flat no. So we're seeing a real spike in four-day work weeks. We're seeing a spike in, obviously, commitments to allow people to continue working from home. So some workers are pre-negotiating that they will not be required to go back into the office or that they will only be required to commute you know, a certain number of days a week. We are absolutely seeing the disintegration of set working hours in many roles. Obviously, there are certain positions that still require them for other business reasons, but many of the companies that are primarily knowledge work in particular, they are being forced to say much more flexibly, hey, if you get your work done, we're going to ask you to generally be available during these hours. But if you need to take time for doctor's appointments, for family commitments, um, that sort of flexibility is being allowed and encouraged and celebrated in some businesses in a way that I have never seen in the 10 years that I've been running the Muse. And so I would encourage people to really think about, you know, what does an ideal or best case flexibility schedule look like? And then what are your need-to-haves or your kind of most core and baseline commitments? And then I would assess your negotiating position. There are certain industries and certain functions right now where truly I am seeing people get almost anything they ask for. There are other... Technology careers right now are very, very, very in demand. And this is not just technologists, so engineers, data scientists, product managers, those are Frankly, those are going to be great roles to be in now and for the foreseeable future because the pace of companies that need to hire those roles is vastly outstripping supply. But even we're seeing a lot of these benefits accrue to other workers in technology industries, people who work in operations, sales and marketing, admin, etc. Financial services. Financial services is actually losing a lot of people to technology, so people that want to stay in financial services in many cases are seeing a lot more leverage to to ask for what they want. Healthcare right now, obviously, with the pandemic, huge focus. So while there have been unfortunately a tremendous number of demands on healthcare workers, we're also seeing for a lot of these businesses, especially people who work in healthcare but aren't frontline individuals, that again, you know, in order to keep people working, keep people employed, employers are being flexible. Because at the end of the day, you know, there are more open jobs than job seekers. Companies are really suffering business challenges that they can't get the work done. So of course, they are assessing when in any sort of flexibility conversation, the person on the other side of the table, the employer is assessing, You know, can I still get my goals met? Can we still achieve the work? So you do have to keep in mind, how do you frame your ask in a way that puts the employer's completion of their goals front and center? But if you can convince them why they can achieve their goals while letting you have the flexibility that you want, you have a higher chance than ever before of getting exactly what you're asking for.
2: I want to talk specifically about pay, about how much we should be shooting for these days. But before we do that, now's a good time to remind everyone that Her Money is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. And I hope you'll join me and award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien for a brand new show, Everyday Wealth, presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Tune in to explore how your financial decisions can shape your life, why wealth is about more than just money. Experienced wealth planners and financial professionals join us every week to talk about things like tax-sufficient investing and planning for the next generation and retirement and so much more. It's your money and you need to make the most of it. New episodes come out every weekend and will be available on major podcast platforms. And you can visit Everyday slash Her Money to learn more and to subscribe. I am having a fascinating conversation with Katherine Minshew, founder and CEO of the Muse. All right, when it comes to the money, if people are getting average pay bumps of 23%, and you know, granted, one survey where should we be shooting? I mean, I know a lot of particularly young people who ask me this question. You know, I'm making 60000 now. I think I'd like to be making X, Y, and Z. If I ask for eighty, are they going to think I'm nuts? I mean, if I ask for more than they are prepared to pay, are they going to think I'm nuts or are they going to not hire me for that reason?
1: Yeah. So this is such an interesting topic right now because, as you said, salaries are rising in some industries in ways they've never done before. So I would have a few pieces of advice for someone who is, like you said, trying to assess their worth, trying to prepare for a conversation. The first is to do your research ahead of time. So how competitive is the market? For the role that you're being hired for? Does the company that you're speaking with have a reputation for paying at or above market value if you can find that out? Is there anything online or through others in your network that you can assess to put some data points down around the market? For example, while you can still ask for a number without any of this data, you are much more likely to get it or to seem prepared and thoughtful in your ask. If you can back up your ask with, you know, from what I've seen, even the statistics that you cited, you know, from what I've seen in a recent survey, job seekers are on average getting a 23% increase, et cetera. Being able to explain why you ask for a specific number can be very helpful. You can also call out specific skills you might have that are above and beyond what's required, expertise you have that is a really great fit for the role. Remind them how much they want you, frankly. Then I think it's also very helpful to assess, you know, how much do you ultimately want to say yes? So for example, if you're in a situation where you could kind of take it or leave it. You know, if they match your salary, you'd love to do it. If they say, no, I'm sorry, you know, 60 or 65 is the best we could do if you would walk, then you might take a different tactic in your negotiation than if you really want to take the job, but you're just trying to negotiate well. So for example, in the former situation where you're not as emotionally attached, I might take a slightly harder approach. You know, thank you so much for the offer after doing my research and you know, really considering it. The market value that I feel would be more appropriate for this role would be X. You know, and you can take a position of, here is why this is what I would need to say yes. Now they may not match it. They may come back and make a counteroffer, but you are communicating that in order to get you, this is the range that they need to be in. At the same time, I've seen people who've said, I want this job. I don't want them to shut me out completely if they can't match my offer. And so for those individuals, I might encourage that you add a statement or two potentially both at the beginning of the process and again at the end that is something in the vein of, I want to reiterate how excited I am about this role and this company, I would really like to make this work. So if this isn't feasible, let's have a conversation about how we can get to an outcome that we're both excited about. You want to reiterate and remind them, I want this, I want to work with you because, you know, sometimes, again, many employers have a lot of flexibility in salary right now. But even for those that might not have all the flexibility you want, let's say that that partner comes back and says, the best I can do is $70,000. That's then your opening to say, first of all, depending on your research, the conversation, you could counter. You could also say, could you add on a $10,000 signing bonus to cover the gap? Would you be able to allocate $5,000 annually that I can spend however I want on my professional development and growth, attending conferences, taking classes, in order to help me both become a better employee for you. Again, you're framing this as their goals, but also to help make sure that I feel like the offer really fairly reflects my market value. I think there's so much that you can ask for. Again, this is also a great opportunity to ask for flexibility if that's a priority, to ask for additional benefits, really look at the entire package. And we are seeing, again, that each situation is different. Each employer has different constraints and abilities. But there is so much room to get so much of what you want, especially if you know what that is and you are able to open a dialogue where you're really working with them to get you there.
2: Let's talk about the resume and just this switching of jobs and how it is reflected on the resume. If you're a young person and you know that the best way to get paid more is to switch jobs, we were always told, well, you got to stay at a job at least a year or maybe two years is better. Has that all just gone out the window? Can we just switch jobs with abandon at these days? And by the way, if you're a Her Money employee, this does not apply to you. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. We are definitely in a period of renegotiating
1: the rules and the expectations around job hopping. There are two big things at play here. The first is that the stigma for leaving a job after a short period of time has been massively reduced for a job. But the second is that the stigma for leaving multiple jobs after a short period of time is still very prevalent in many industries and with many hiring managers. And here's one of the reasons. Employers are are still not very excited about hiring people that they perceive to be overly mercenary. So if they see that you joined company A, you left after six months for a higher salary with company B, and that this seems to be a pattern that you will move on the second someone is willing to pay you more, That is going to hurt you very badly in your job search because they will feel like, why would I invest all this time and energy recruiting, paying, training this employee if they're just going to leave six months later, the moment that something better comes along? At the same time, if you join a company, work a short stint and move on, and particularly if, frankly, we're seeing a lot of people who are... Very clear about the type of work environments that they want to join. And so in interviews, they will explain, rightly so, a short stint on the resume by saying, you know, the position was not what had been communicated to me when I was in the interview process. And ultimately, after I joined the company and started the job, it became very clear that XYZ had either changed or, you know, was not true. This is. Links to a separate point that I'm making a lot to our employers about the importance of being very honest and very direct about the jobs you're hiring for because candidates have no patience for lies in the recruiting process. I mean, they, they never should have. It's ridiculous that we used to operate in a work environment where recruiters would say, you know, all sorts of things to get a candidate. But in any case, as an individual... It's absolutely acceptable to leave a job after a short period of time if it's not a good fit, but you should be careful of doing that too many times because we are still seeing that there is a fear among a lot of hiring managers about hiring someone who appears to be a serial job hopper.
2: At The Muse recently, you put up a piece entitled Use This Template to Write Your Resignation Letter. Can you just tell me, first of all, why'd you do it? And second of all, walk me through it. What are the important pieces in that letter.
1: So why we did it is that people are resigning in record numbers, as you said. And yet, resigning right is so important. And I don't think a lot of people realize this because they think, well, I'm leaving, so what does it matter? But the fact is that life is long. Your professional reputation is important. The chance that you will come into contact with people from your old office, that you will find yourself in a situation where you want something and someone checks you back channel through someone you used to work with. All of these things are happening more than ever because we're all connected more than ever. And so it's so, so important to leave on the right note. And so we published a piece on how to write a resignation letter because not everyone knows how to do it. In fact, part of why I started The Buse was to democratize access to all of this information about how do you show up in an interview, how do you write a cover letter or a resume, and, and you know a resignation letter is no different. So we wanted to make it very crystal clear that the essential pieces of a resignation letter, obviously people should add their own personal details and flair, but at the very beginning, we asked people to be direct, state the position that they're resigning from and the effective date. Obviously, I should add, it is best practice to have a resignation conversation first. So it's very important before you send this letter to sit down with your boss or your uh, kind of direct manager Let them know that you're resigning, explain your reasons. That is a tough conversation to have. We also have a lot of advice on the Muse about how to have that I quit conversation. But afterwards, you need to submit your resignation letter as an official document, both to your boss and to HR, higher ups, et cetera. And it also makes sure that everything is very clear. In addition, in the future, there are times when it's possible that you might want to come back to that company or something might come up about your employment, and it really helps you to have a very professional resignation letter on file.
2: Catherine, you're amazing. I mean, the Muse is amazing. It's such a valuable resource. We're going to head into our mailbag segment. The first letter that we have is actually a job offer-related letter. Would you stick around and help me answer that? Absolutely. I'd love to. Okay. So before we go to mailbag, I want to just take a second to remind everyone that her money is supported by BCU bcu understands that financial freedom doesn't happen at one single point but rather at many stages of life that's why bcu is here today for your tomorrow with support available at every stage of your financial journey you can learn more about eligibility at bcu Dot org. And just for our listeners who are not really familiar with BCU, let me just explain. BCU is one of the country's leading credit unions And if you are looking to join a credit union for better rates on auto loans and mortgages and savings accounts and all of those other great things that BCU can support you with, that's why you would go and check out bcu.org. All right, Catherine, let's dig in. This note comes to us from Rachel, and she says, Hi, Jean. I recently received two job offers. I negotiated offer A up by $5,000, but when I received offer B, it was already $10,000 higher than offer A. I was so surprised and happy that I forgot to negotiate. I just accepted it, but now I feel like I may have missed out. The offer I accepted was a 92% increase over my current pay. And yes, I do mean 92%. I went from $65,000 to $126,000. I am a biostatistician moving from academia into biotech, pharmaceutical, clinical research. So an increase was expected, but I was flabbergasted by the amount especially since I had not worked in clinical research before. The job title is the same, some of the job duties are the same and similar, but the focus is different and there's a lot more room for advancement. Based on my Glassdoor research, the offer is a little higher than average for the position. Company B knew I had another offer when they made theirs and I'm comforting myself with the thought that they came to me with an offer at the higher end of their range in order to compete with offer A. I guess my question here is Is it ever okay to not negotiate, or have I been a bad woman in the workforce by not negotiating? P.S. I'm finishing my PhD in 2023 and my new company said they wanted to acknowledge this when I finished, so I'm thinking this would be a good time to negotiate an even higher salary, especially since I will also have one and a half years of proven work to support it. But part of me still feels bad about not negotiating upfront what do you think? Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, Catherine, let me get your thoughts first. And Rachel, you are not a bad woman in the workforce. Absolutely not. My heart goes
1: out to you, Rachel. What a beautiful letter. First of all, congratulations. Like congratulations on getting these two offers. I think that, you know, yes, if you had come to me after receiving that second offer and said, do I have room to negotiate? Of course you do, yet at the same time, I do think it's fair to assume that that second company may have put a really strong foot forward at the higher end of their range, because they wanted you and they wanted to get you. And so I think that you know, you also mentioned that this role has a lot of opportunities for advancement. So I think it's a great opportunity to say, all right, I'm going to be extra diligent about noting down my wins or successes in the role. I would recommend that you keep a file or a tag in Gmail, or whatever is, is the best and easiest way for you to just every time you have a win or something you're proud of, note it down to yourself so that when you go back to them and have compensation conversations in the future, you will have a, a body of evidence to call on, even if it's just in your own prep, to remind you of what a valuable employee you are. And then I think that there, you know, there's a great opportunity in even perhaps your one-year review or the sort of end of, I would say generally speaking, a year is about the shortest time that I would recommend unless that there's extenuating circumstances. But it is a great opportunity to sit down and reopen that conversation and say, you know, I didn't negotiate when I started this job because I wanted to join this company so much. I would probably frame it that way rather than because I was blown away by your offer. You know, I wanted to join this company so much, but Upon reflection, you know I think that I probably could have come back to you with an ask then, and I'd love to discuss whether we can reopen the conversation about my compensation now. You also can keep your ear to the ground about what other people in a similar position are being paid, and if you do find in six months, nine months, that you have ample evidence to believe that others in a similar role all being paid more. I don't think it's inappropriate to open that conversation at that point, especially if you do it with grace rather than a
2: demand of sorts. I totally agree with everything that Catherine just said. And Rachel, just to make you feel better, I've done this. I have so done this. I mean, I remember the first time. Yeah, the first time I got an offer to moderate a conference. I mean, I was just so blown away that I was being asked to do this. And by the number on the table, I was like, yes, I will absolutely be there. I didn't negotiate one bit. And I've learned over the years to try to just take a little bit of a pause. But you should feel fantastic about this. And P.S., please make sure that you are using this extra room in your salary, an extra room in your budget to max out your 401k, I think I would be remiss if I didn't remind you to do that.
1: And if I could actually just add one thing, the fact that you didn't negotiate is something that Let's say in two, three months, there's a conference that you'd like to attend and you want the company to cover your costs or, you know, again, additional training and development that you could frame to your boss about how this would benefit for the company. I think it could be an interesting opportunity to say, I know I didn't negotiate my initial offer. I'd love to see if this is something that the company would consider covering. It would be very meaningful to me. So I think you've got a lot of, a lot of latitude here. And like Jean said, it's, it's, you're
2: in a great position. I've been there too. So congratulations. (laughs) Absolutely. Catherine, thank you so much for all your time today, for all your amazing advice for our listeners. If people want to get more involved with the Muse, what's the best way to do it?
1: Yeah. So in addition to obviously our, our website, which is themuse.com, we are very active on social. So you can find The Muse on Instagram, on Twitter. We have our coaching platform where people can book one-to-one time to get help on their resume or uh, prepping for an interview, etc. cetera. And we just love to hear from people because we want to be here for them and we want to be a resource
2: as we're all navigating
1: this crazy time together.
2: Amazing. Thank you. I hope you'll come back again. I could do this all day. We'll bring in Catherine Tuggle for the rest of your mailbag, but thank you so much. And I'm saying hello to another Catherine, our own Catherine Tuggle, who produces this podcast every
0: single week. Hi. Hi, Jean. And um, I, I love the other Catherine, not only because her advice was incredible, but because she knows how to spell Catherine. So shout out to the K-A-T-H-R-Y-Ns of the world. I, I feel you. I feel you at Starbucks where your name never, ever gets spelled right. <laughs> try to be
2: a Jean, right? <laughs> try to, just try to be a Jean. I mean, you would think
0: we all wear them. You would think it would be really easy to spell it, but but No. It's true. Well, I have to say sometimes when I'm doing the transcript of the podcast, it always spells your name like DNA, like G-E-N-E every single time. I'm like,
2: who? who?" Or, you know, like how men spell gene. Yes. True. Isn't that the same? Right. Men spell gene, G-E-N-E, because it's short for Eugene, which I don't think anybody names their children anymore, but I don't think people name boys Gene. I don't think people name anybody Gene anymore, actually. (laughs) I know. Maybe in France, like Jean. Jean. Mm -hmm. Well, then it's John, right? It's true.
0: Now I want to break into song from Les Mis. (laughs) Feel free. We know you can sing. So there you go. I know we've got another mailbag question, so let's dig right in. Yeah. Our next note comes to us today from Megan. She writes, Hi, Jean and Catherine. I applied to refinance my student loans when I was sure the payments would start back up in January, but I haven't signed the contract yet. Now that student loan payments have been postponed yet again, should I wait to reapply in April or go ahead and sign my current refi application now? I ask because I have a really good rate, 3.44%. Plus, if I wait, I'd have to have my credit hard pulled again. The refi company says they can only extend my application for a month until February. I can make the payments fine now. I've been setting that money aside instead, but what if there's another extension? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: So Megan, this is a really good question. It's especially a good question right now. For anybody who's been not paying so much attention, the student loan payment hiatus, which applies only to federal student loans, has been on through most of COVID. We expected that it would end in February, beginning of February. Instead, it's been extended another time until May because of Omicron. And so I imagine that a number of people are thinking about this. I'd actually go ahead with your refi. And I'd go ahead with your refi, not so much because I'm worried about a second hard credit pull. Yes, it's true that too many pulls on your credit can send your score down a little bit, but one every three months or so when you're doing it for a very specific thing is not especially troubling to me. What is more worrisome is that the Federal Reserve is now saying that interest rates are going to go up three times this year. We've got some major investment banks, Goldman Sachs among them, that has said three. No, we're going to see four interest rate hikes this year. You've locked into this really good rate. I would just take it. The fact that you can make your payments, that's a good thing, right? We definitely enjoyed this pause. It allowed us to save money. It allowed us to build our emergency cushions. And if we were struggling during the pandemic to deal with our other obligations, but eventually we're gonna have to get rid of the student loan debt. And so I would say, just go ahead and go through with the refi make the payments, and for anybody who's wondering why if you refi, then you're not eligible for the pause, it's because when you refi, federal student loans into private student loans. Your loans become private student loans. And that means they're not eligible anymore for federal protections, which include things like income-based repayment as well as the pause that we've been experiencing. So I think that you are good to go, but I think it's a really, really smart question to ask. And good for you for having your ducks in a row. Yeah, so smart to be prepared for those changes that are coming early. Exactly. And by the way, we really didn't expect things to get extended past February, and I don't expect the pause to be continued after May. I may come back and eat my words, but I don't think that I will.
0: Yeah, that's my instinct, too. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you so much. And in today's
2: Thrive, why you need to use, trade, or sell your gift cards ASAP, The total amount of money people leave on gift cards every single year is almost obscene. An estimated $15 billion is left on unused gift cards floating around in purses and wallets and desk drawers every single year, and it's about time we got out and just spent this money. The rule of thumb is to treat gift cards like cash. For example... If you received a $20 bill tucked inside a greeting card, you would immediately pull that money out, put it in your wallet, and maybe even spend it the very next time you went into a store. You should try to do the same with your gift cards. And if you got gift cards this holiday season and you haven't used them yet, Late January is the perfect time to take advantage of deep discounts being offered by retailers on, well, just about everything. And if you have a feeling that you might never get around to using a gift card because it's not quite your speed or your style, consider trading it rather than selling it. On gift card trading and selling sites, you often get a better rate when you trade than when you try to sell for cash. But... If you have a card that's from a store that sells many different things, like a Target or Amazon or Home Depot, you may be able to get a cash amount that's pretty close to the face value of the card. Reputable sites for trading or selling include CardCash.com and Raise.com. And don't forget that donating your unused gift cards is always an option. Some charities and not-for-profit organizations like schools and sports clubs are are always looking for donated items they can auction off at fundraisers. Check in with your local favorite not-for-profit to see if they might have a use for your unused cards. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Katherine Minshu for walking us through the new rules of the job seekers world in 2022. I hope that you all got something out of the conversation. I know that I did. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk soon.